Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Giss, and you're listening to The Gist of Freedom. Tonight we have on a descendant of Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. His name is Ken Marlis. Ken, are you on the line? I am, yes, Leslie. Thank you for having me on. Welcome back to the show. We had you on a few times, and I want to thank you again for always answering my call and being so willing to come on. Well, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk about my great ancestors and the work that we're doing at our organization and to share that information with your audience. So thanks so much. Okay. So we're going to talk about a new project, a book that your family and uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, yeah. are working on. The book is titled Picturing Frederick Douglass, right? That's right. Yeah, it's um, something that we're very, very excited about. And it, it's being published on November 2nd, uh, but it is available for pre-order. Um, and hopefully we'll have a chance to share that information on how your listeners can can get a copy of it. But we're really excited about it. There are um, three professors, um, two from uh, the University of Nottingham in the UK and one Harvard professor, John Stauffer, and they have researched over the past several years, and they've determined that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed American of the 19th century, photographed more than President Lincoln, uh, more than Ulysses S. Grant, more than General Custer, uh, more than uh, many of the um, history-making people that we see out there that there are lots of photographs of. Frederick Douglass was the most photographed, and his only contemporaries that were photographed more than he was were the British royal family. So we're really excited about this book, and it's a beautiful coffee table book with 160 photographs that have been uh, discovered. Many um, have not been seen before. Uh, there are the familiar ones that we've seen, but I know that the uh, people that, that get this book are going to be very excited about it because there are new photographs in there that have never before been seen. Okay. Do you have any favorites? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I um, contributed the afterword to the book. Henry Louis Gates wrote an epilogue, and um, in my afterword, I wrote about 
I think five or six that, that really moved me. Um, the, the first one was the first photograph that was ever taken of Frederick Douglass, and that was, um, he was 23 years old, so he was just three years removed from slavery, um, still a fugitive slave, and it's the first time he ever sat in front of a, a camera. And I love the photograph because you can really see in his eyes just the courage that this young man had. You know, this was a, a young man that had the courage to stand up uh, against his overseer at the age of 16 and to escape from slavery at the age of 20. So just three years removed from slavery, he sat down for his first portrait. And at that time, he was really just beginning his work as an abolitionist and um, speaking out against uh, slavery in the United States and really, you know, talking about his experience having been born into slavery and having um, experienced the horrors of slavery, he was starting to speak out, and it really pushed the abolitionist movement forward because it was the first time that the general public was hearing from somebody that could communicate the inhumanity of slavery and what he had gone through in a way that nobody before him ever could. So that first photograph is one of my favorites. There's another one of him smiling. Um, it's not a big smile, but he has a grin, and his eyes are, are sparkling, and, and you know, having grown up around his images and you know we've all seen photographs of of frederick Douglass, and he always had that stern steely glare and to see a photograph of him grinning um, just was something that was very special for me and also for my mom nettie washington douglas who by the way is a person that united the bloodlines of the booker t washington and frederick Douglass families so those are two of my favorites out of a uh, hundred and sixty in, in the book Okay, how did this um, these photographs come about? Did, were they sponsored by the abolitionist movement? You touched you know, on Frederick, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that, that's a great question. Frederick Douglass was very strategic, and he understood early on that this new emerging medium of photography was going to help him um, make his arguments for liberation and equality in the same way that his speeches and his writings would do that, he understood that he could use that technology, that new emerging technology, um, to put himself out there in the public consciousness, not only as a man, but as a citizen. And really, when you, when you look at these photographs of him and you see him dressed uh, just so perfectly and he's, he's posed, um, you know, very strategic in the way he would pose because he wanted to give off this impression that he was a man, and it would be something that would shatter the, the hoax that the slave master had put forth that African Americans were um, inferior and they weren't worthy of freedom, they weren't worthy of citizenship. So Frederick understood that he could use photos and that when you looked at a picture of him, you couldn't deny that he was a man. So the pictures came about because he understood when he would go from town to town giving speeches that he could sit down for his portrait in the cities that he, he, went, he went to. And, of course, you know, back then, if for any of, any of us that know anything about photography from the 19th century, um, it took a, quite a while to sit down and, and have a portrait taken. But he was very strategic in doing that so that he could push these images out into the public sphere and to help shape his his image in the public consciousness in the same way that people would use technology and media today, the way that celebrities would use technology and media today. So it, he was very strategic in the way he went about this, and that's why there's so many of these photographs. Now, we know President Obama, he has his own personal photographer. 
Was there a certain studio or a photographer that uh, photographed Frederick Douglass more so than anyone else? Did he have a favorite? No, he actually um, really was photographed by a number of different photographers. He was photographed by women. He was photographed by African-American men. Um, He was photographed by Caucasian men. So he was, um, you know, he would go into these towns and and these cities, and he would just sit down, you know, with the best uh, photographer that he can find. So when you you read the book, you'll see that um, the images were photographed by a number of different people. And the great thing about the book is that there's a, an introduction that really talks about Frederick Douglass's love of photography, how he was in love with photography. And he gave four speeches on photography during the Civil War. In fact, he wrote and talked about photography more than people that actually wrote about photography because he understood <laughs> that he could use it for progress. So also in this book, there are four speeches um, that he, he gave. Um, three of them have never been published before, so they were transcribed from his, his handwriting. And um, the speeches are, one of them is entitled Pictures in Progress. So he would talk about how photography, this great medium, could push progress forward. So he was, you know, it's amazing when you think about this, this man that was born into slavery, he had to teach himself to read and to write over the objections of his overseers because it was illegal to teach a slave to read and write. And he was separated from his mother. He only saw his mother three times his whole life. He had been separated from his brothers and sisters. They were like strangers to him. Um, he didn't know his father, although it was presumed that his father was his master. And so here you have this boy that had no home, he had no family, and he had no country. And he would go on to escape from slavery. Three years later, understand, understanding that this new emerging medium of photography would help him make his arguments. And I just find it remarkable that, that he had this brilliance, that he would just understand it. I mean, Leslie, how do you explain that? How do you come from slavery, teaching yourself to read and write, and then to go on to become the most photographed American of the 19th century? Well, he was definitely a forward-thinking abolitionist. Uh, Can you tell us more about, and my favorite part of um, his story, is his escape and his marriage to Anna. And I just recently read that there was a group called called the Dorcas, D-O-R-C-A-S, that helped raise money for him to escape. So if you could go back to that story. And of course, his the Ruggles connection. Well, he was, um, you know, he talked about his escape in his later autobiographies and his narrative, which was published uh, first in 1845, which became a bestseller. And he was 27 years old when that book was published. He didn't um, talk about how he escaped in that narrative because he didn't want it to get out there um, so that it would put anybody that helped him at risk. And also if there were others that wanted to use that same method of escape, he didn't want to alert the slave catchers, to um, the the way in which he was able to do that. But at the age of 20, in 1838, on September 3rd, he disguised himself as a sailor, and he carried with him forged identification papers, and he would escape by train and then by boat. He would get to um, New York City, where he would meet up with my great-great-great-grandmother, Anna Murray, And Anna was a free black woman in Baltimore, which is the city that Frederick had escaped from. 
Frederick and Anna had met, and she had really you know, put this idea in his mind while he was still enslaved that he was not meant to be a slave and that if they were going to be together and one day get married and have a family, she didn't want her children to be their father to be enslaved. So she actually sold a bed, um, helped to finance his escape. When he would get to New York City, they would meet up and they would be married by Mr. Ruggles in his home. And then they would, on the uh, Underground Railroad, make their way eventually to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where Frederick and Anna would settle in, and he would start to work um, as a ship cocker. He had had um, this skill that he had learned while he was working on the ship docks in Baltimore, so he was able to get a job in New Bedford, Massachusetts, working on the ship docks up there as a ship caulker and to begin to make some money. And then at the age of 22 years old, he attended an anti-slavery meeting where the white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison uh, was holding the meeting, and, and Douglas had read about the abolitionists and Garrison. He had read Garrison's um, abolitionist paper, The Liberator, while he was still enslaved. So when he got to New Bedford, Massachusetts, he would find himself, he would make his way to this meeting. Uh, Garrison heard that he had this fugitive slave in the audience, and he asked Frederick to stand up and to just tell a story. Tell the audience, Frederick, what it was like to be a slave. So, you know, Frederick wrote later in life that he was so nervous this first time that he spoke that his knees were knocking together and he was shaking from every limb. But he stood up and he began to talk about his experience. And he had a natural gift for communication, and he was eloquent, he was well-read, he was theatrical in his delivery. So Garrison and the other abolitionists were so impressed, and they understood that this fugitive slave could help them push the abolitionist movement forward, because now, as I mentioned earlier, the audience was going to hear from somebody that had experienced the horrors of slavery, so they asked Frederick to continue on with them and to go from town to town, city to city, to tell a story. Well, he started to he did that, but then he started to have a problem. And that problem was people started to doubt that he had ever been a slave because his whole delivery and who he was as a person was shattering the hoax that the slave master had put out there as I mentioned earlier. So people would would look at him and say there's no way that this man could have been a slave. It doesn't line up with what my world view is of what a slave is supposed to be. So in order to, to prove that he was a slave, he wrote his autobiography, The Narrative, uh, published in 1845, and in it he named, na- he named names and he named places. Well, now he had another problem, and that problem was it became a bestseller. And that's the last thing that you want um, as a fugitive slave on the run from your master is the, the notoriety of a best-selling book. So he would have to go over to Europe Uh, for a couple of years as a cooling-off period, and he would speak um, about slavery in the United States while he was traveling through Ireland and the U.K. And while he was over there, um, his abolitionist friends were so impressed with him that they pooled their money together, and they purchased his freedom for $711 from his master, and he was able to come back to the United States and really begin his work as an abolitionist. He, He and Anna would eventually move to Rochester, New York, and he would start the North Star newspaper out of Rochester, which was the leading abolitionist voice. So he, was, he and the other abolitionists really uh, were largely responsible for pushing President Lincoln to eventually do the right thing and sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Frederick Douglass and Lincoln, they really didn't see eye to eye. Uh, if I recall properly, um, Lincoln was hesitant to sign. Am I correct? Yes, and for those of us that you know have studied our, our history and, and President Lincoln, um, he's known in the history books as the great emancipator, but it took him um, a while to get to the point where he would sign the Emancipation Proclamation, and that's why the abolitionists and Frederick Douglass were so important, because Abraham Lincoln, um, his first presidency when he got into office, he didn't consider African Americans equal to whites. And he famously said that if I could save the Union and keep slavery, I would do that. If I could abolish slavery and save the Union, I would do that. So he was a politician. He was on the fence. His first priority was to save the Union. So Frederick Douglass felt that he was moving, Lincoln was moving too slow. You know, Frederick would say, my, my brethren are toiling away in chains, and we don't have time for you to evolve and to eventually make this decision. We need to make, you need to make this decision now. So to Lincoln's credit, um, you know, he did, he was pushed and he was pushed and he finally understood. Now, of course, we had a civil war, and, um, but he finally um, understood that he needed to abolish slavery. And, um, and so he issued the Emancipation Proclamation as a wartime document in January 1863. And are you familiar with the Confiscation Act where he was considering African Americans as contraband? And yes, just, and, and he did that twice. That also, yes, mm -hmm. and, and you know, President Lincoln also talked about colonization too. And um, that was something that he talked about as a solution to send African Americans to, um, back to Africa, to Liberia. Um, to some of these other um, places um, that they were going to colonize. So he, you know, it was, it was very clear that he was a politician and he was only doing what he could do to save the Union. And so that's why the importance of Frederick Douglass and, and also the relationship that Douglass and Lincoln had. Now, you know, as you mentioned, um, Frederick Douglass was, was not happy with how slowly President Lincoln was moving, but they met on at least three occasions that we know of, and, and the third occasion was at Lincoln's second inauguration, and, and Douglas was in the audience, and he was right there in the, in the front as Lincoln delivered his inaugural address, and afterwards, Douglas was invited to the presidential gala at the White House, but when he got there, uh, they wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let him in because he was black. It didn't matter that he was a best-selling author, the leader of the abolitionist movement. He was a celebrity. He had notoriety in the United States and in, in other parts of the world. He, he was known. And, but none of that mattered. Because he was black, they weren't going to let him in. But when word got back to President Lincoln, Lincoln said, oh, no, you let him in. And as they're walking toward each other, and if you can get this visual, of course, President Lincoln was very tall. I think he was 6'4", and with that stovepipe hat that he wore, he was even taller. And Frederick was said to be about 6'2", to 6'4", somewhere in there. So they were very tall men for that time. And so if you can just see them walking toward each other in front of all of the party guests, President Lincoln points out, and he said, here comes my friend Frederick Douglass. I want to know what mm -hmm. you thought about my speech, because there's no person's opinion that I value in this country more than yours. 
and he called Frederick Douglass one of the most meritorious men in America. And I, I truly believe that had they not had that relationship, had uh, President Lincoln not seen this African-American gentleman, this former slave, this self-made man, he had, if he hadn't seen him as his equal, who knows how long slavery could have gone on and we'd be a, a very different country than we are today. Correct. Uh, let's talk about, I have two questions, and I'm going to say them both because I don't want to forget. One is about uh, pictures. Are there any pictures with Frederick Douglass and other dignitaries like Lincoln? And the second question is about the fugitive slave law. How does it affect Frederick Douglass? So you can attack them. Well, the um, photographs uh, in the book, there are no photographs of, of um, Frederick Douglass and President Lincoln. Um, I don't believe that their um, historians don't know that they were ever photographed together. Uh, but there is a photograph of Frederick Douglass giving a speech. It's the only uh, picture that, that we know of where he is actually um, speaking and not posed um, you know, at, in a studio or in another group-type setting. And that um, photograph was taken at Tuskegee which is a school that my great-great-grandfather, Booker T. Washington, founded in 1881. And when I was looking at the photograph, and, and everybody was so excited that, here, that there was a photograph that had been discovered of Frederick Douglass speaking, that nobody really looked at who else was on the stage with him. And as I was examining it, I, I looked closer and I looked closer, and I, I thought, wow, that, that looks like Booker T. Washington. So I contacted um, Zoe Trod, one of the professors and authors of Picturing Frederick Douglass to um, just run that by her to see what she thought. And, and she started to do some research, and she found that Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass had communicated um, many times by letter, uh, but leading up to this speech that he was giving at the commencement at Tuskegee. And, um, in fact, there was a letter that was discovered that Booker T., uh, Washington had offered to pick uh, Douglas up from the train station and to get him back to the train station in time so that he can make his next speaking engagement um, in another town in Alabama. So there was this correspondence uh, leading up to Douglas being there. So that photograph, I've identified Booker T. Washington in it, so it's the first, first known picture of my ancestors in front of a camera together. So I'm really um, excited about that. As far as other dignitaries, um, there are no other dignitaries. Um, he was photographed with his grandson, Joseph, who was my great-grandfather, and they were photographed together because they had a common bond, and that was music and the violin. Um, people know that Frederick Douglass taught himself to read and write, but he was also a self-taught violinist, and he taught uh, my, my great-grandfather, Joseph, how to play the violin, and, and Joseph became a concert violinist twice playing in the White House, and he was the first black classical uh, recording ar artist for what was then called the Victor Talking Machine Company. And, and so that, uh, that photograph is really special because it's the only one in the collection where Frederick Douglass is photographed with a blood relative. So we like to say in the family that um, Joseph was the fa favorite grandchild. But, you know, I, I just encourage your listeners to, to pick the book up because they're going to just be intrigued and just surprised and, and really, um, you know, look at all of these photographs and just see this 50-year evolution of this 
fugitive slave boy at 23 until the last photograph, um, which is his deathbed photograph, which was taken in 1895, um, the day after he passed away at the age of 77. So to the second part of your question, the Fugitive Slave Law or Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, you know, your, your listeners may know that if you were a slave or you were enslaved in a, in a slave state like Kentucky, uh, you could run away and cross the Ohio River and go into Ohio, which was a free state, and you were automatically free. Well, when the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, what that meant was that masters now could go into any state in the Union, whether it be slave or free, and they could legally recapture their property. So that started a whole new um, industry of slave catchers and bounty hunters um, that were out looking for freedom seekers who were trying to make their way to freedom. So once that law was enacted in 1850, that meant in order for freedom seekers to be free, they would have to make their way all the way to Canada, which had already abolished slavery. And to get to Canada on the Underground Railroad, if you were coming from a southern state or coming from Louisiana or someplace um, that far south, on average it would take a year um, to make it all the way to, to Canada. So that the law didn't um, affect Frederick Douglass personally because by 1850 he had already uh, purchased, purchased, purchased his freedom from his master, but he understood the, um, how the law would affect those that were trying to make it to freedom. So that meant as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, which he and Anna were, and their home in Rochester was a, a stop on the Underground Railroad, that they would now have to assist freedom seekers um, so that they could make it to the next station, the next safe house, so that they could eventually make it into Canada. Okay. Now, is there? Um, any, do you know of any uh, stories about him, Frederick Douglass, uh, making a decision to move to Haiti for any reason? Yes. Um, you know, after slavery um, was abolished, and then he would go on to a career as a statesman, and he was appointed um, Council General to Haiti. And he, he gave a speech about Haiti at the um, Chicago World's Fair, which I believe was in 1892. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm home. It's, it's, it's Sunday night, so <laughs> the dogs are barking. Um, uh, so no he, he, would, he, would give the, he would give the speech, and um, you know, he, became, he, was, he was frustrated with um, the, the U.S. and how the U.S. was not supportive of this country, Haiti, and um, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put you just on hold for one second, if that's okay. Is that no okay, problem. Let's... Go ahead. Okay, yes, sorry it about is. That. Okay. We are listening to the descendant, direct descendant of Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. He's talking about a new book titled Picturing Frederick Douglass. It's due to come out, and hopefully when Mr. Ken Morris returns, he'll tell you how to pre-order this book. Uh, several photographs many that we've uh, never seen in public eye. So um, you can look, Google the title as we wait for Mr. Ken Morris to return. I'm back. Picturing. Yeah. Okay, here he is. Yeah, I, I'm we sorry about, about that. Hades. If you're doing a radio interview on Sunday night from home <laughs> in between football games, uh, the dogs can sometimes in, in, interrupt, but sorry about it's that. It's okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, so he was – 
uh, critical of the United States and, and um, in the speech at the Chicago World's Fair and how um, the U.S. was not as supportive um, as it should have been for Haiti. And then as he would continue and over the years, as, as we're starting to move closer to um, you know, Jim Crow and, and he saw the shift in the Republican Party, how it was shifting toward um, the right-wing, more conservative faction and how the uh, rights of African Americans were um, were not being supported in the way that he thought. So he was toward the end of his life. He was he was disappointed in the way the country was heading, and he could see um, that we were headed in the wrong direction. Um, which, of course, as we went into Jim Crow and and into you know mass incarceration, the civil rights movement, and all of the, the issues that we deal with in our communities today, I think Frederick. You know, as as a visionary, as a as as a prophet, um, saw that that these things were coming. So, at one point of his of his of his life, he you know had considered uh, moving to Haiti. Oh, can uh, we have a caller on? And I apologize, I was not looking at the switchboard. Uh, Professor Tanya Thames, welcome to the show. You've been a guest on. Michelle and your friends to the Gist of Freedom. Do you have a question for Ken Morris? Yes. Thank you so much, Leslie, for um, for having Ken Morris on the show. And um, I'm very excited about this interview. Um, Ken, we at Westchester University, which is in Westchester, Pennsylvania, we have a Frederick Douglass Institute. That was where Frederick Douglass gave his last public address, and we have verification of that 19 days or whatever before he died. He did speak, but this was like his last formal public address. So we have a statue of that. So if you Google, if you go Westchester University, Frederick Douglass, it's a beautiful sculpture. Yes. And on that, in that sculpture, um, we have six benches around it, and I have been fascinated because I'm what they call a Frederick Douglass scholar, um, uh, and so what happens is just yesterday I was talking about Frederick Douglass with um, this project called the Pennsylvania Hallowed Grounds Project, and I would just like to just to hear your perspective. The fifth bench, uh, uh, the fifth bench is six benches around this beautiful pitch um, statue of a young Frederick Douglass. He's young. And um, what happens is that um, it's for the United States Colored Troop in my family. But I wanted to put something there because Frederick Douglass was so instrumental. You were just talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. He was so, um, you know, of course, two of your uncles, I think, served in the um, United States Colored Troop. And, you know, he was a recruiter for the United States Colored Troop. And so I would just like to hear your perspective on Douglas, um, you know, um, after, I mean, you know, during the American Civil War and your perception of knowing that um, participated, you know, in that recruitment of colored troops. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. And I am familiar with the uh, Frederick Douglass Institutes at a number of universities. And um, the picture of the statue that you're talking about is actually in, in the book. And as a part of the book, um, it, does, it, it not only includes 160 photographs, but it includes um, you know, information on how Frederick Douglass shaped um, you know, just the way his image and his legacy continued through the artwork, through the statues that are out there, the murals, 
um, the the negative imagery uh, that was put out there in, in some of the cartoons and, and the etchings and these types of things. So I am familiar with that statue because it does depict him as a younger man. And as you know, most of the uh, statues around the world uh, depict him as an older man. So that's a statue that actually is one of my favorites. Um, with regard to his recruitment uh, for the, the Massachusetts 54th Regiment and the Colored Troops, yes, you're correct. Um, my Uncle Lewis, who is Frederick Douglass's oldest son, um, did serve in the Massachusetts 54th, and he fought um, in the Battle of Fort Wagner at Morris Island in, in South Carolina. And he actually, Lewis, was injured in that battle. He was shot, and um, it, the, the, the bullet grazed his hip, and he would eventually um, develop gangrene in his groin, uh, which we believe in the family affected uh, his ability to have children. So Lewis never had any children. But Charles, who was Frederick Douglass's youngest son, is my great-great-grandfather, and Charles was also recruited in the Massachusetts 54th. And he didn't fight in that battle because he became ill with a, um, some sort of lung illness, and it didn't allow him to travel and to fight. But I, you know, I'm very, very proud of the fact that Frederick really put his money where his mouth was. You know, he went to President Lincoln in one of their meetings, and and he talked um, to President Lincoln and, and tried to convince him to allow um, colored men to take up arms to fight for their own freedom because he believed that there would be nobody that would fight harder, more valiantly, or with more courage than those that are trying to fight for their freedom. And then I'm also proud of my great-great-grandfather Charles and my Uncle Louis because they were free. And they you know, were the sons of this great American hero. And as good a life as you could have during that time being you know, in an African-American family, they were considered pretty well-to-do. But they understood the importance of, of fighting for freedom and fighting for their people that were still enslaved and toiling away in chains and, and all of the other free African-American men that took up arms to fight for the cause and to fight for the right thing. So when you consider that Frederick Douglass was talking to President Lincoln and trying to convince him to allow colored troops to, to fight, and then his first recruits were his own sons, that shows you um, his commitment and, again, putting his uh, money where his mouth is. Well, I tell okay. you, I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. And just one more qu question, Leslie, one more question, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just so excited to, I'm glad to hear. I didn't know that the statue was in the book, and I can't wait to go back and tell folks about it so we can make sure we get this copy of this book. Um, but I do have an, another question. Um, I did not, I mean, I love, you told one of my favorite stories about Douglas and how they gave him the switch around. He couldn't get in the West Room and finally Lincoln. And he, I love that story. I actually tell it every semester three times <laughs> for different classes. Um, but I, the question that um, I have is that what do you think, I mean, what, where were you, um, could you just elaborate on your understanding of Douglas and John Brown? Um, I grew up Southern. I grew up in Mississippi. And, you know, it's not really that we don't really have critical voices of John Brown. Frederick Douglass said he would live for the slave. John Brown died for him. So just, could you just elaborate on your understanding of um, Douglas and Brown? And thank you so much for, thank you so much for your um, again, sharing of your perception. 
Well, thank you. It sounded like you just gave a snap to somebody that I was giving to my dogs to try and get them. Yes, I am. You know, sorry about that. <laughs> I recognize well, that snap. I just want well, to know, uh, Ken, this is the last question. So okay. I, you, you can tend to your, your pet. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, it, yes, uh, John Brown. In fact, I gave a speech a couple of years ago, and um, it, and I haven't given it since, and so I'm going to try and, and go by my memory. And, and the speech was given at, at the John Brown Farm in Lake Placid, New York, New York where he's buried. But um, Frederick um, and, and John did have a relationship, and, and John spent some time at, at Frederick Douglass's house in Rochester. And in fact, um, Frederick and Anna's youngest daughter, Annie, who passed away when she was 10 years old from, from typhoid fever, um, she and John Brown became um, somewhat close. And her father, Frederick, was at the time touring uh, on a tour in Europe. So John Brown, according to some historians that I've talked to in, in Rochester, um, say that there was a friendship that was developed between Annie and John Brown. And when John Brown uh, was captured at Harper's Ferry and then subsequently um, he was hung. That had a, a, a really negative effect on this little girl, this little little ten-year-old girl. But um, John Brown and Frederick Douglass did meet on a few occasions, and the last occasion was um, prior to Harper's Ferry, just prior to Harper's Ferry, and it was in some sort of a rock quarry, and I I can't remember exactly where it was. But John was trying to convince Frederick to go with him to Harper's Ferry um, to take up arms. And Frederick um, understood, he, he, he really appreciated John Brown's passion and commitment to the cause, and he, he thought John was, was a hero in what he was, was going to do, but Frederick understood, and I think the words were that you're, you're going to be going into a hornet's nest, and, and Frederick understood that that was not the right thing to do, and it would be a very dangerous thing to do. So thank goodness for our family and for my existence <laughs> that that Frederick didn't uh, was not convinced by John Brown to go to Harper's Ferry because who knows what his fate would have been. Um, so as a family, we're happy that he didn't do that. But after John Brown was captured, um, there was a letter to to Frederick in his um, belongings, and so Frederick was implicated in this Harper's Ferry um, plan. And he would have to escape uh, to Canada for a little bit because there was a warrant that was put out for his arrest. And then eventually uh, that warrant was dropped and he was able to come back to the United States. So I, I hope that answered answered your question. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. And it was, in Chamber, it was in Chambersburg, PA, that they had that conversation. Along with that, it's, um, it's one of my favorite stories when Frederick Douglass, he writes about it in that narrative. I think it's the second one where he mm -hmm. talks about Shields Green or Esau right. Green. And, yeah, yeah, so it's one of my favorite. This has been fantastic. Can I look so forward to looking to the books? I'm excited about seeing the young Frederick Douglass. I mean, I'm just so excited. Um, <laughs> I'm just, just ecstatic. I'm just ecstatic. So thank you so much for all the hard work that you do and congratulations on that. Um, I know that you are the another one of my favorite folks who is connected to Douglas um, was the Ida B. Wells, and I see that you well. Um, you won the um, a, a journalism award. That you were the first male to win that award, correct? Uh, yes, I'm very proud of that, and my mom and all of the ladies in our family are very proud of that as well. So yeah, I yes. mean, so thank you so much, and thank you, Leslie. I'm getting off the line. Thank you. So this is a wonderful interview. I'm, I'm keep listening. So keep talking. All right, thank Great. you, thank you, thank, thank you. So you. Much.
Okay. Um, how would you like to end this interview? I know we should give out all the contact information for the book, Picturing Frederick Douglass. Right. And, again, uh, it includes Henry Louis Gates, Jr. As a, as a writer of the epilogue. And mm-hmm. could you end the interview for us? Yes, and I just wanted to say really quickly because I haven't um, talked about it, but our organization, Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, we continue uh, Frederick Douglass's fight for freedom, and we've combined the legacies of Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, Booker T. Washington, uh, who's my great-great-grandfather as the great educator, and we bring human trafficking and sex trafficking prevention curricula to secondary schools through a program we call History, Human Rights, and the Power of One, and it's designed to keep young people uh, from becoming victims of sex trafficking and to empower them through service projects in their community. So we're really proud to continue um, the work that our ancestors um, started. Uh, We were using and leveraging the platform um, that was afforded to us that my ancestors built through struggle and through sacrifice uh, to do something about this issue. And we've been doing uh, great work in schools for about eight years and transforming the lives of tens of thousands of students. You know, Frederick Douglass said it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And we felt that the best way to go about educating the public on the existence of human trafficking was by starting with um, where education should start, and that's with young people. Um, Booker T. Washington said, if you want to lift up yourself, lift up someone else. And our young people who are facing challenges in their communities um, through lack of education, um, lack of health, uh, proper health care, and all of the disparities that we know are affecting our communities, we have young people that are lifting themselves up because they're working on a global issue that's greater than they are, and they're helping to, in the same way that Frederick Douglass communicated the inhumanity of slavery during the 19th century, uh, students today are communicating in inhumanity of the slavery that still exists today in our world. And slavery exists in every civilized and uncivilized country around the world, including here in the United States. There's slave labor in the products that we wear, in the products that we consume, um, sex trafficking of minors. So uh, we're continuing that work. So I just wanted to make sure that your listeners, when they go and, and take a look at our website, they can go to fdfi.org, and that's the acronym for Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. It's fdfi.org. And um, for those of you that are listening that want to get information on the book or purchase it, uh, when I looked earlier today, um, you can purchase it through the link that I'm about to give you and at a 41% discount uh, prior to the publishing. So this is a pre-order, and the publishing is, is November 2nd. So, we're, we're, Leslie, we're trying to use technology like young people. We have young people teaching mm-hmm. us through service projects that we've got to start getting with the time. So um, <laughs> the way to get this information is to pull out your cell phone and to text the keyword BUY, B-U-Y, to 51555. So you would just open up a text message and type in 51555 in the top number section, and then in the text part, type in BUY, B-U-Y. Click that link. You'll get a text back from us uh, with a link to purchase the book, and it will take you to more information about it. Um, All of the books that are sold, uh, a portion of the proceeds will go to benefit our our human trafficking prevention education work in schools. So I hope all of your listeners go out and get the book. It will make a great 
uh, Christmas present. It's a beautiful coffee table book, 9 by 12, duotone with beautiful color photographs and, and the essay by Henry Louis Gates, the afterword by me, um, the introduction. All of the photographs are, are captioned um, with, with all kinds of information and, of course, all of the statues um, that have been identified are in there and just a lot of, a lot of great information. So I hope everybody yeah. will pick it up. Okay, text by 51555. Exactly. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ken Morris. This was a great interview, and we look forward to having you back on. Thank you so much, Leslie. Look forward to talking to you later. Okay, Okay. bye-bye. Bye. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.